Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Biblically and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paley. And in today's episode, we're going to focus on how New Testament texts may have been written and produced. So we'll be focusing on literacy and the production of texts within the world of the New Testament. So if you listen to uh, the latest episode, uh, I did end that by saying that there would be a part three on our series in slavery in the New Testament, um, but decided that it would be better to uh, move on to a different subject, mainly because I was planning on focusing on the Gospels and Jesus in slavery, but um, that it's a very interesting topic, but a very nuanced one and one that um, it would not be would not be a great subject to talk about in more of a of a free form you know half hour long podcast. So uh, I decided to start a new series uh, with this episode. I am really excited about this one. Uh, I want to focus on the idea of literacy and text production within the world of the New Testament. So won't necessarily be focusing on any particular biblical text per se, uh, but more want to talk about what historical forces or mechanics might be behind the production of the text that actually became the New Testament. And we've touched on some of this in previous episodes, but I did want to devote uh, an an episode or maybe even two to this subject. So first off, obviously, we have the Bible and the New Testament as we have it today, and it's a collection of books and letters. Now, that canon, as talked about previously in other episodes, did not become finalized until the the 4th century and really started to take shape maybe at the end of the 2nd century. But I really want to focus less on the canonical process and more the actual production of texts within the 1st century. So the first thing is to talk about literacy and education in the Greco-Roman world of this time. So obviously the Roman Empire in the first century CE is a very large entity. And so there was no uniform system of education and no one way that everybody did things. But the first thing that holds true, regardless of where you were in the Roman Empire, was that there was no concept of a public or widespread education system like we have in conceptualized today. Most education was within the purview of of parents or, in some cases, masters who owned slaves and would educate their slaves. But if we think about children and children's education, the overall literacy rate, though it's hard to say because there's just a lack of evidence. And unlike today, where there's a lot of statistics and reports, and et cetera, back in the ancient world, obviously they did not they did not have uh, they did not have those, and there were no no formal reports on education levels or, or anything even remotely related to that. But uh, there have been some really great scholars who have devoted um, many years of research into the subject. And overall, 
the really landmark study within that and that really got the ball rolling was uh, William Harris and his book on ancient, and ancient literacy published in the late 80s. Uh, so would definitely recommend that reading if you're interested in ancient literacy. But he really set the bar for future studies on literacy in the ancient world. And most scholars have agreed with him in his estimation that most parts of the Roman Empire throughout any period would not have a literacy rate greater than 10 to 15 percent. Now, that's with the caveat. Uh, well, there's a couple caveats around that. Um, one, obviously, it's an imprecise figure. It's really just a, uh, an educated guess. Two, most of the educated, edu I'm trying to think of the good way to phrase this, institutions of learning or um, some of the more famed philosophical teachers or rabbis, a lot of those people and institutions were located mainly in urban areas. And throughout the Roman Empire, specifically in, in Israel, to take one example, the majority of the population was rural. So while the rural population literacy rate might be closer to you know, maybe 1% to 3%, uh, the vast majority of uh, people with literary skills and were educated and can be considered literate uh, would fall within urban centers, at least in terms of where they actually acquire that, that learning and knowledge. Third is that there is definitely a big difference when it comes to gender. So there were examples of women being educated in the ancient world, no doubt about that. But the vast majority of people who were educated in the ancient world were men. And most often, very wealthy men. Because since education was under the authority of the parents, it was really up to the parents to decide whether or not to uh, educate their child, and if so, to what level of sophistication they want to educate their children to. So because of that, there's this uh, sort of general gradation of literacy, so to speak, where you have people that fall on various points on uh, if we have a, a spectrum where on the one end you have, you know, totally illiterate, cannot read, cannot write in any capacity, all the way up to somebody that's capable of writing a literary piece like Homer or Plato. Um, there's a lot of points in between those two extremes. And so similar to today, you know, it's hard to say what literate means. So we have to be careful in terms of terminology, but for the sake of simplicity, you know, we can consider anybody who had any sort of reading ability to be literate. Uh, and that's generally speaking what Harris defines within his 10 to 15 per, uh, percent literacy rate. So that 10 to 15 percent is for those who could read at a basic level. Now, those who could read at a sophisticated level, you know, read something like Homer or uh, write any sort of sophisticated original piece of writing, the percentage of people who had those skills would be significantly smaller. Now, impossible to put a figure to it, but absolutely in the single digits uh, and maybe even less than 1%. It's really hard to say, but certainly a very select group of people 
who most likely came from an aristocratic or a wealthy background because if you have a child in your let's say a a peasant family or even you know i'll say middle class even though there's no concept of that uh, back then but some family that you know does have a decent income and standard of living if you have a child, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to spend all of that money and time um, educating your child or sending your child to be educated somewhere when it's not really going to be relevant to their profession. You know, you don't need to be literate to work on a, a farm. You don't need to be literate to do manual labor. Uh, and in many cases, only a very, very basic level of literacy might be required for something like a merchant or uh, an artisan or craftsperson of some sort. So either it didn't make economic sense for uh, parents to educate their children to a high level. Uh, and if it did make economic sense, it was only to the extent that it would help them um, be able to perform their presumed occupation. So sometimes that would be done in a more of an academic classroom setting, or it would be done more through apprenticeships uh, and then learning sort of a, a craft literacy, so to speak, uh, meaning learning literacy in so far as it will allow you to enact commerce or transact business, you know, whatever the case might be. So, and that's for the middle class. For lower class, they would not even have had the funds to educate their children in the first place, no matter how much they might desire to, even though there was not, again, in contrast to today, where there's a lot of emphasis on education and uh, universal access to education. Back then, uh, that was not the way that the vast majority of people conceptualized education. It was a very limited segment who had the financial means or, or incentive to actually uh, become educated. And uh, practically speaking, the financial aspect um, was a big differentiator and was a big uh, barrier a barrier to the point of entry to begin an ed education. And education, uh, similar to today, it takes a lot longer to learn how to write as a, a sophisticated uh, piece of writing than it does to learn how to read a children's book. And so we need to keep that in mind when thinking about who may be behind the production of many of the texts that we have in our New Testament. So that's ed education, generally speaking. I mean, there's plenty of, of sources that talk about how ancient Greeks and Romans uh, and Jews went through the educational process, you know, how they would learn what they were learning. We do have some sources on that. But uh, that overview, in short, was to just establish the point that literacy was not widespread in any way, shape, or form. There was no universal education system, and that a very, very, very small segment of the population would be able to read and write at a at a high at a high level. So let's take Paul for example, because although. All of the texts in the New Testament, you know, are original pieces of writing. Um, we we know more, or we potentially know more about the process behind letter writing than we do writing out a um, a narrative piece like the Gospels or Acts. So, with Paul's letters, 
we we have a lot of evidence from the Greco-Roman world into the mechanics of letter writing and how it will work. Now, oftentimes this evidence comes from the the you know top one percent of the one percent. Uh, so people like Cicero um, and and Quintilian and all these other um, very famous um, first century. Uh, BCE, first century CE writers, people like Philo and Josephus even, all of these writers are very, very privileged writers and often only give uh, the point of view of the wealthy. So it should not be taken as indicative of, you know, quote unquote, how the everyday person would function. But regardless, we do have examples of you know, smaller correspondence, a lot of which has been found uh, in Egypt and a lot of the papyrus sticks within Egypt. And so we do have enough to, to paint a general picture of how this would have worked. So Paul, we imagine him being a traveling missionary of some sort, working some sort of job, whether that's a tent maker or some other sort of artisanal job that he was working with his hands, some sort of manual labor. He is writing letters to various communities while he is still traveling to other communities. So if you wanted to actually communicate with someone over a long distance, the only way to do so would be through letters. So if you wanted to get a letter written, most people, again, because of, as we covered earlier, the limited literacy, uh, a lot of people, if they were looking to write a letter, would find a scribe uh, within the town or city that they were in and employ their services to write a letter for them. And in addition to the low levels of literacy, also, the actual mater writing material could be very expensive. So most people didn't just have free access to sheets of papyrus or um, ink or uh, actual writing instruments. I mean, you could get them, but it's not something like today, you know, everybody has a pen or a pencil on them. It, it was not that that was not the case in the ancient world. And we shouldn't imagine someone writing a letter like we often do today, if we actually still do write letters, of sitting solitary at a desk, um, you know, writing your thoughts out silently, putting an envelope and sticking it in the mail. The way it would work was somebody would find a scribe somewhere. They would tell them what they wanted the letter to read. The scribe would then take out some sort of writing instrument. Sometimes this would be writing it out on a wax tablet for proofreading. Uh, it could be, they call it a stylist, basically a, a writing table of some sort and would um, write straight onto the papyrus sheet. So the exact mechanics, mechanics of that could vary, but it was very much a public exercise. Um, these, these skilled, trained scribes would be equipped with all of the tools of writing necessary. And it was up to you, usually, to find a way to get that letter to the recipient. And because there was no universal postal system, uh, the only one that really existed back then was for the Roman army, and only they were uh, really able to make use of that system. But for everybody else, you would have to find a letter carrier. For Paul, that often was his co-workers, so people like Timothy Titus, who were working with him, and he would send them 
to these communities in a missionary capacity, but also to actually practically deliver the letter as well. And because letter delivery could be notoriously uh, unreliable, as you might imagine, uh, if you did employ a stranger, having a, a friend or trusted confidant deliver the letter is definitely the ideal case, and Paul's circumstances enabled him to do so. But for most other people, you would have to find um, either somebody who was going to the, uh, the area that you wanted to send the letter to, or you know, hire some sort of service, but you would have to find somebody that you didn't know uh, and give them instructions on who delivered to, where they were located, et cetera. And then the letter may or may not be delivered. Uh, it was very, very unreliable. So um, there's a lot of ambiguity in that, you know, in terms of what percentage of letters were actually delivered or what was the average time of delivery. You know, we don't have any statistics like that. But suffice it to say that it would it was a very um, unreliable system and a unreliable system that did not have uh, like a uniform way of working. You know, it was very bespoke for each person. But generally speaking, the writing process was fairly standard in that most people would find a scribe who would write the letter for them. And then the individual would find some way logistically to get that letter to the intended recipient. So for Paul, we can imagine that he either hired a scribe. For example, in Romans 16, we have a little line at the end of the letter that says, I, Tertius, you know, am the writer of this letter and send you greetings. Now, it's a question of whether Tertius was a, a random scribe, which he probably wasn't. He was more likely a, a slave scribe of some prominent Christian in the, in the area from where Paul was writing from. So oftentimes, um, wealthier Greeks and Romans would have educated slaves in their household that would serve as scribes. They would read text to them. Uh, they would essentially serve the function of a private secretary of sorts. And so it was fairly common for slaves to actually be pretty well educated in some cases if they were working for you know, masters with significant wealth and also a master who needed a, a educated slave for whatever reason. So with Paul, we're probably usually not dealing with a random scribe. And if we are dealing with a scribe, it's probably a scribe of a um, person who was a Christian and part of the community and a supporter of Paul in some capacity. So if Paul wasn't using a, I'll call them a, a slave scribe, for lack of a better way to put it, he could also have one of his coworkers um, uh, write down the letter if they were able. Now, we don't know, for example, the level of education that Timothy or Titus had or Sosthenes or any of the other named coworkers, but suffice it to say that it's probable that they could definitely read. Uh, because oftentimes letter carriers, and we know that Timothy and Titus served as letter carriers, at least at some points in time, they would have been able to, needed to read the letter out loud to the community and also be able to, you know, properly interpret and give context and all that type of stuff. So it is 
probable that they were pretty highly educated. Now, to the point where they would be able to serve as a scribe is unknown, but it's certainly uh, a possibility for sure. Now, Paul himself was probably not actually writing any of these letters himself. He would be dictating out loud to the scribe or whoever was tasked with writing down the letter uh, rather than him actually, you know, uh, holding the pen and writing it down. We know this for a lot of reasons, but one cool reason that we can actually see in our New Testaments clear as day is that in, for example, Galatians and um, Philemon, we see Paul actually take the pen and says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. So it's pretty obvious that um, that implies that the rest of the letter is not written in his hand and not written by him. And that, you know, at some point in the letter, Paul picked up the pen himself and wrote it down, whether it's to authorize the document, you know, in the case of Philemon saying, uh, I'll pay this debt back to you. So we know for sure that Paul was not the one writing in. So there is some, you know, unknowns around the, the exact details, but we can have a pretty good idea on the letter writing process for Paul. And the other thing to note <clears throat> is that Paul's letters are extremely unusual for a lot of reasons. But the reason most relevant here is that they are much, much, much longer than the standard Greco-Roman letter. Something like Philemon or uh, even um, more so something like the third letter of John, uh, you know, in the way back in the New Testament, those letters are much more indicative of the, you know, quote unquote, typical Greco-Roman letter. Something like Romans or 1 Corinthians. I mean, I, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I'm pretty sure that Romans is actually the longest letter from the Greco-Roman world that we have. Um, and not only is it really long, but it would have also been incredibly expensive to produce. Uh, you would need a lot of um, uh, manual labor to produce Romans. I mean, just the time that it would take, it would take hours and hours and hours because it's not like they're going to be able to do this in one fell swoop. You know, there were drafts. They would often write on wax tablets that could be um, smoothed over so that, you know, could write notes or a, a draft of the letter. You know, it wasn't a just, hey, I'm going to write this down in one fell swoop and then we're good to go. There was a lot more labor involved in the process than that. And the writing something like Romans, which is a long text even to write in English, you know, typing out on a computer, let alone uh, writing it out on parchment or papyrus um, in, in very large, laborious Greek letters on some, you know, small... Um, lap-held uh, writing board of some sort. So it would have taken a, a lot of manual labor and it would have cost a lot in terms of materials. So we're talking, obviously we don't have exact numbers or, or the conversions are not exact, but we're definitely talking about thousands of dollars, possibly even you know five plus thousand dollars just to produce one copy of something like Romans. So take keep in mind that the texts that we have in the New Testament are not typical Greco-Roman texts. Even the Gospels, the Gospels are extremely long and something like Luke, Acts uh, is, you know, extremely long. 
Um, it's, it's really interesting that they're so atypical in a lot of respects. Um, and so what, what I conclude from this personally is that, one, there are a lot of unknowns about the process, and there always will be. But um, one th thing that I, that I conclude, despite of that, in spite of that, is that the people who are producing these texts were affluent and very well-educated people. Now, in the case of Paul, he was definitely very well-educated. We know that he was a Pharisee and so, you know, had to be very well-educated. And we know from his letters that he is very well-versed in Greco-Roman rhetorical scale uh, and very familiar with just overall uh, conventions of how rhetoric and, and writing was done in the Greco-Roman world. So we know that Paul was very highly educated uh, and that he employed very highly educated individuals to actually write these letters, whether they were slaves, whether they were co-workers, whoever they might have been, and that there was a lot of financing that needed to go into these texts. Um, so they would have needed to find sponsors or supporters that would um, be able to either supply the material itself or um, be able to provide the funds in order to purchase the material or pay someone uh, in order to uh, acquire the material. And so that's just for Paul's letters. For something like the Gospels, that's a whole other can of worms um, because the Gospels don't really fit neatly into any a general category of literature that we have in the Greco-Roman world. I mean, it's not a biography in the traditional sense. Um, it's a it's a unique blend of of a lot of things that's given a, a distinct Jewish slash Christian spin to it. So it's it's interesting that all the texts in the New Testament are not complete anomalies. You know, they do. The, they make sense in the environment in which they were produced. I mean, they're not 100% original in any way, shape, or form in terms of the, the structure and the, the content and topics that they cover. But at the same time, they're also incredibly unique and unlike anything else that we have in the Greco-Roman world. Um, so it's really cool to see how these ancient Jews and Christians put their own spin on um, uh, Greco-Roman literature of the period. So I'm not really sure what that, at the end of the day, really tells us about the New Testament texts themselves, other than more fully um, picturing how these texts got to us, because the, the Bible did not just fall from the sky. Uh, it is very much a human product. And if we're going to understand how they got into our Bibles, one of the things that we need to understand is just how education and writing and reading worked in the ancient world, which is a, a very complicated subject and one that's open to a lot of conjecture because of the lack of evidence and lack of hard data and figures in a lot of these areas. But we should not think of the New Testament as the product of, you know, poor illiterate fishermen, such as what most of the, you know, original 12 apostles would have been in, in Galilee, for example. We should picture these individuals as highly learned people, um, could be either uh, coming from a Jewish background or a Greco-Roman background. 
and that they did not work in a vacuum. They, it, it was a very group exercise, the production of these texts, whether it's Paul dictating a letter to somebody with you know, his associates standing around and offering feedback or arguing points, or whether it's one of the gospel writers you know, um, uh, working within a group to produce this text, circulating texts with one another in the group for, for feedback and comment. You know, we don't know exactly what they did, but we know for sure that it was not a one-person solitary enterprise. And once we do realize that, I think, at least for me, it adds another um, really compelling human element to the Bible and gives it another point where we can actually access the text and still treat it with a sense of reverence and holiness, but at the same time recognizing that it is a human product and that we can relate to it on a, a lot of different levels. In this case, relating to it as, hey, you know, similar to today, you need a high level of education to write something, you know, a, a philosophical discourse like, uh, like Plato um, versus the level of education you need to read Dr. Seuss. Um, and although the process of writing has changed a lot and that a lot of it is you know, sitting at a desk alone, um, um, writing and thinking silently, um, a lot of the uh, editorial process is still the same, even though it's virtual. You know, we elicit feedback from peers. We take inspiration from other sources and other authors who inspire us or whose content we find compelling or we think serve as a good foundation for our arguments or views. So the, the underlying principle driving literary production education really is the same at the end of the day. It's just the actual day-to-day on-the-ground details could vary quite widely. And there's also a lot of blind spots within our, our larger picture and understanding of education and literacy and text production in the Greco-Roman world. But one thing for sure, and the, the main point that I really do want to get across in, on this topic is that we should do away completely with this idea that the gospel authors were either these you know, poor illiterate fishermen or that they were just these random people who were writing down um, uh, ideas and stories through inspiration and that these texts were just magically came together in, in some way, shape or form. We should not treat the New Testament as a unique corpus of texts. Now, we, we can, um, from a religious standpoint, like saying we believe that these texts hold you know, universal truths or tell a, a very important story that has the significance that no other text does for, for you, that certainly. But what I mean by that is that we should not think that the t- texts in the New Testament were produced in a manner that was radically different than how anything else in the ancient world was produced. There's no reason to to block off Christianity as special in this respect, and certainly less so now than than in the past. But um, there's still this idea that you know uh, early Christians were unique in some way, shape, or form, and they were in, in in a lot of ways, especially in their beliefs and their actions. But when it came to the actual production of texts and and just how how communities and social dynamics worked, there's no reason to privilege 
early Christian communities as being significantly different than any other uh, elite um, textual producers. Um, so one book that I would highly recommend for anybody that's interested in reading more about this topic, uh, especially in relation to the Gospels, there's this great book that recently came out by um, Robin Faith Walsh, um, who's a professor at the University of Miami. It's called The Origins of Early Christian Literature, Contextualizing the New Testament Within Greco-Roman Literary Culture. Really interesting book, um, really helped um, fill out my perspective on early Christian textual production. And I think she does a great job on really driving home the point that we, as histor looking at it from a historical point of view, should not think of early Christians or the people who produced early Christian texts as being unique in any respect. Um, so that's, uh, I think that'll do it for this, this episode. Um, not sure if I will do a, a part two. Um, probably, probably not. Um, but I'm thinking of maybe doing a part two and going back to um, the, the concept of pseudonymity that we covered in the pastoral epistles, uh, that of writing falsely in someone else's name. I uh, think about maybe the, the textual an educational aspect behind that. Um, but at least for now, so this is going to uh, be the one episode focusing on, on uh, literacy and education and its relation to the New Testament. Um, so I hope that uh, you were able to get something out of this episode, and I hope you'll join us for our, our next series, whatever that ends up being.